Welcome to Friends of Europe's Frankly Speaking podcast special on the war in Ukraine. I'm your host, Tracy Dafters, and this is episode 16, recorded on Thursday, the 16th of June, 2022. In this episode, we welcome Senior Fellow for Peace, Security and Defence, Paul Taylor, and guest speaker, Eleanor Daly, who is independent expert on sovereign debt. We discuss why Western sanctions may prevent Russia from using global financial systems to service its sovereign debt and what impact that may have. If Russia cannot pay, it would result in the first major default on foreign debt since the Bolshevik Revolution over a century ago. And with the Ukraine economy suffering, how will their creditworthiness fare and what should the West do to support it? Tune in now to find out what they have to say. I'd like to start with you, Eleanor, our guest speaker of the day, with the first questions. Um, is Russia going to default on its payments? Oh, good morning and uh, good to be here. Thank you. Um, well, um, uh, R- Russia is uh, now in, uh, in the so-called grace period. Um, you know, the payment was due at the end of May um, on some of the bonds, uh, multi-million dollar, um, and uh, it's uh, it's going to end at the end of uh, May if Russia doesn't uh, um, pay on uh, on the on uh, uh, on the debt um, on, on interest payments um, on this debt. Um, there won't be an automatic default. It takes twenty five percent of the bondholders to um, declare default. That's uh, um, a technical uh, part of it. But is Russia going to default? Um, it's a it's a good question. You know, by denying Russia the the use of international payment system um, to process FX uh, debt service payments, uh, the um, American and European sanctioned regulators uh, may effectively force uh, Russia to default. The question will be um, whether the presence of um, those sanctions will give Russia a defense in a, a lawsuit when it comes brought to enforce uh, um, the defaulted instruments. Another question will be whether the bondholders would sympathize with Russia's predicament and refrain from commencing enforcement action. How likely is is it that uh, they would um, give some leeway to to Russia? Um, the 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 leeway, you know, it's hard to predict the markets, um, and uh, they uh, so that would be the the, the big question. Um, so um, they will have a choice to bring uh, to bring an action um, uh, pretty much right away if um, there is um, you know 25% of the bondholders um, agree to do so uh, to wait and see they have three years bondholders to commence an action um, or um, not do nothing um, or sell out uh, the last option is not a real option because of the you know the the market is is essentially frozen for um, resale of Russian securities. And w- what impact would that have on, uh, for instance, the war in Ukraine if Russia does default at the end of this month? Well, um, I don't think the default has any um, appreciable impact on the war. Um, Russia was not intending to finance the war through borrowings in the international market. Um, if anything, the sanctions will allow Putin to conserve his uh, foreign exchange reserves and apply them to uh, finance um, the war effort, uh, sadly. 
So we've heard quite a lot about um, Russia's war chest and, uh, you know, there, there have been sort of uh, much discussion about uh, the fact that Russia has been building this up, this, this war up for quite some time now. I mean, do, do you think that they would continue to, to use, do they have enough funds to continue to fund the war? Well, um, they, they have substantial funds, uh, including an FX and uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert in all, overall uh, political situation um, uh, in, in Russia, but uh, from the standpoint of the sovereign debt, if Russia, uh, you know, is forced to default on, uh, on the payments in, uh, in using a foreign exchange, um, and that's what's essentially is, is happening now, uh, then it will, um, you know, it will help Russia to uh, use uh, and conserve the effects and use, uh, you know, and we're talking about, you know, um, potentially, you know, uh, 600 billion, uh, 300 unfrozen, uh, frozen, um, and 300 uh, billion frozen uh, by uh, US and uh, EU sections. And who would you say gets hurt if Russia does default? Well, uh, the bondholders obviously get uh, hurt first. Um, they won't get paid. Uh, they cannot uh, sell sec securities, um, and they will have to, uh, you know, potentially go into um, uh, you know, long uh, and uh, and costly uh, um, legal proceeding to to get paid. Uh, you know, probably uh, pennies on on the dollar. Um, it is far too early to know um, whether. You know, Russia will pay a cost um, in terms of high interest rates uh, or uh, restricted market access when it comes back. Uh, you know, it's sometimes in, it's happen, It's going to happen sometimes in the future for uh, for a defaulted um, for a default that everyone would remember um, that was forced upon Russia. So, if that was an intention of of, uh, of the authorities um, in the U.S. and the EU to to have that result so it's it's far in the future so the bondholders will um in short uh, be hurt first mm -hmm. um, would you say that it's wise or unwise for the west to be pushing russia into uh default and and why would that be well um it's a good question. Un uh, unwise, in, in my view, um, to my knowledge, um, the sanctions authorities have never articulated exactly uh, what they were trying to achieve by forcing Russia into this position. Um, what I fear, however, is that um, these measures may um, unintentionally um, engender a degree of sympathy for Russia among at least some of the financial professionals. Um, if uh, there is a you know, compelling, even a plausible justification for forcing Russia into a dead default, um, the Western sanctions authorities would be well advised to uh, communicate it publicly in my view. Okay, thank you very much. Um, it's, it's a very interesting uh, angle. Um, I'd like to move now to, to Paul. Um, let, what's, uh, we, we know that uh, President uh, Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Schultz, uh, Italian uh, Prime Minister Mario Draghi are meeting in Kiev for the first time today to discuss EU candidate membership uh, for Ukraine. Um, is there enough support among EU member states for um, candidacy for Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova? Paul. Well, we're, first of all, good morning, Tracy. I think we're going to 
have to wait and see what the European Commission recommends on Friday. It's believed that the European Commission will recommend uh, granting candidate status uh, to Ukraine and Moldova, but perhaps not to Georgia or, or with some conditions, given that um, Georgia's uh, democratic credentials are uh, uh, significantly uh, uh, more in doubt than those of Ukraine and Moldova. Um, but um, then there will undoubtedly be uh, a tough negotiation among member states. What you have is some member states um, that are unenthusiastic about further enlargement in general and feel that the EU uh, has uh, bitten off, you know, arguably more than it can chew with the previous enlargements uh, and is having problems notably with the enforcing the rule of law in Poland and in Hungary. And therefore that should be taken as a warning signal. There are also um, concerns in some uh, West European countries, particularly the Netherlands and uh, France about um, uh, labor migration, about um, their working workers' standards being undercut. So um, the, those sorts of uh, uh, concerns exist. And then you have some countries which um, have particular issues on enlargement, either with Ukraine or one of their na uh, other neighbors, and which may want to hold up the whole process and, as it were, take it hostage. Um, potential candidates there uh, include Hungary, which has long been uh, uh, obstructing uh, Ukraine's progress and relations with the European Union over the issue of the language rights of the Hungarian-speaking minority in Ukraine, uh, but also Bulgaria. Bulgaria has no, has no uh, problem with Ukraine. Bulgaria's problem uh, is with North Macedonia. And again, it's about um, uh, uh, language rights and sort of bilateral issues. And that has held up uh, uh, the start of membership negotiations for North Macedonia and Albania uh, with the EU. Um, and of course, if one part of the enlargement process is held up, it's possible that could also throw a spanner uh, in, in the announcement of further status. On the other hand, you have to say, uh, Europe wants to make a strong political gesture of support and solidarity with Ukraine. And giving Ukraine candidate status is something which is hugely politically symbolic. It's something that Ukraine has made clear it very badly wants. Uh, and President Zelensky, at a time when uh, Ukraine is, is, is on the, uh, 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 you know, is having a difficult time in the war and, and Russian forces are grinding them down slowly in Donbass. The idea of some strong gesture of political support, I think, is, is, is very compelling, uh, particularly since it's a gesture which doesn't lead to any immediate effect. Um, it has to be said that, um, you know, the truth is um, candidate status is the beginning of a tremendously long and complex process to join the EU, even for countries that are economically and uh, in a regulatory way and in the rule of law, uh, substantially more advanced than Ukraine was before the war. Um, Turkey has been a candidate for EU membership for more than 20 years. It's been negotiating with the EU on membership for just under 20 years, and it's going nowhere. So um, candidate status in itself is more symbolic than, than, than uh, really compel com compelling.
Right. So that was my next question. Uh, I mean, what would the implications be um, on the war in Ukraine if uh, Ukraine was granted candidate status? So you seem to be saying that actually it wouldn't wouldn't make very much difference right now. I don't think so. I think uh, on the on the war, the conduct of the war at the moment, what matters is how much uh, 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 Ukraine can can garner in terms of uh, arms deliveries, um, urgent arms deliveries, uh, arms uh, on on how much financial support it can get, um, how much more uh, it can get in the way of of supplies and various things. I mean, the whole Ukrainian financing of the war, unlike Russia, which has this huge war chest made up largely of hydrocarbons uh, export revenue, uh, Ukraine does not have such a large war war chest or indeed any war chest at all uh, to speak of. Uh, And it's been um, keeping the the budget going with with string and sticking plaster and large infusions of temporary assistance from the West. um, that the Ukraine is facing a, a crunch in the coming months unless it gets a lot more assistance from the West. I think, uh, you know, you, you, we should ask Elena this, but I think there's an assumption uh, in the international financial markets that Ukraine is, is underpinned, is underwritten is effectively by the United States and, and, and the EU, and therefore that it's, it, it is credit worthy. But I, that, that question of how much could... Uh, can can Ukraine borrow on the financial markets? Maybe more germane uh, uh, to the to the conduct of the war. Um, so uh, th- those are the things that really matter. Uh, candidate status would be, I think, an enormous morale boost for the Ukrainians, for Ukrainian forces, for uh, President Zelensky, and for U- Ukraine's political class. Um, but you you have to remember that before the war, uh, the EU was uh, in a bit of a holding pattern with Ukraine because there were serious issues about oligarch control of sectors of the economy, about the difficulty of implementing the rule of law, particularly uh, in in terms of what the European Court of Auditors described as grand corruption in uh, uh, Ukraine. Um, And therefore, you know, the war has clearly made a difference there as well. It's somewhat deflated the oligarchs and their fortunes, and it's it's reduced their influence in, in, in many ways because um, the influence of the state institutions has been much more important. Um, but nevertheless, that problem is still there in the background and will remain. Tracy? Yeah. Eleanor, I'd just like to come back to um, the point that you made, Paul, and, and bring Eleanor in. Um, the creditworthiness of, of Ukraine, um, is it underpinned by the US? I mean, are they OK to continue borrowing? What, what's the situation there, Eleanor? Well, um, Ukraine has, uh, you know, a modest amount of outstanding um, international bonds in, in the market. There is no question about uh, borrowing uh, in the financial market right now. I think that is a window is, is, is closed. What at issue now is uh, um, whether Ukraine um, you know, will be uh, you know, will, will be servicing, continue servicing it, um, you know, the international bonds that are already um, outstanding. So far, uh, um, the country has been servicing. Um, and one would ask, um, you know, an obvious question whether um, that uh, FX foreign exchange could be um, better used uh, 
for other purposes by the Ukraine than servicing um, the bonds. Um, so the question will come up, in my view, quite quickly, uh, you know, whether there would be some sort of a suspension, um, you know, of the, of the servicing of the international debt. And I think um, that should be likely be supported uh, by the by the market, uh, by, by, you know, by the countries. Um, you know, the, there is also, uh, you know, country to country debt, uh, so-called Paris Club debt. I think that um, too could be subject to a suspension. That would be very helpful for you, the Ukraine. It's effectively, um, you know, almost the same as, as borrowing um, anew. So if the, the servicing of the existing debt uh, will be suspended, that would be the best outcome, I think. And just one more question I have for you on um, on the default, uh, the Russian default. Um, for instance, we saw in a Reuters report saying that the Russia's uh, finance minister, Anton Suyanov, said last month that uh, Moscow will service any external debt obligations in rubles. I mean, how possible is that? Well, um, uh, because uh, Russia is effectively, you know, frozen out of the uh, international payment system to process FX um, uh, foreign exchange debt servicing, the only fallback for um, the countries to service in rubles. Um, as I mentioned before, some of the um, outstanding bonds have this option already written in the bond. So that's an option, but it's not an option for the one that is uh, is now um, you know, um, in the grace period. Um, Russia has put, uh, to my knowledge, a system um, in, the, in place that permits uh, foreign um, you know, foreigners in general and foreign bondholders and, and um, uh, in, in particular, opening um, an account in uh, um, in rubles, it's a special um, special account. Very, you know, it's a technical, but you know, special account where you know the um, the transfer from the depository system in rubles will be uh, will be credited to which account it will be credited. Um, and uh, I even heard, um, you know, that uh, there is an intention, um, at least um, you know, from the coming from the Ministry of Finance uh, that. Um, that there won't be any capital controls to take rubles out of those accounts because that is the main issue. You can credit it, but you know whether the um, bondholders or anyone could use um, the rubles that are stuck in uh, in the Russian payment in the Russian banking system. So um, right now um, in in Russia they are effectively. Um, um, uh, capital controls um, uh, in in force, but whether there will be you know a special license by the central bank um, given to uh, lift um, those uh, those capital controls for the purpose of uh, expatriating um, the funds that were credited um, uh, uh, as a payment for on these bonds. So it gets very technical, but yes, there is a way. Uh, to pay and uh, and that is unfortunate in my view because uh, you know from the Western uh, standpoint uh, and the bondholder standpoint Russia might have down the road a defense um, in the court uh, of law uh, when when uh, lawsuits uh, will will commence if they commence uh, um, that uh, Russia fulfilled its part of the bargain um, and it put in place the system it, it uh, made a payment in rubles but uh, it was impossible uh, I was actually prevented from making um, the payments in in uh, dollars or, or other currencies. 
That's really interesting uh, point that you make about the law courts. How likely do you think that Russia it will be uh, to to take action against uh, this? Against the um, against the the payments uh, against the the uh, bondholders. I mean, likely it's uh, um, see, um, uh, bondholders will commence uh, will commence an action, um, mm -hmm. and uh, I don't think Russia would commence an action that was impossible for it to uh, to pay in effects. It will rather be a Russia Russia's defense, even when uh, bondholders uh, commence an action, and they will have. Uh, uh, three years after the default, uh, actually quite a short window compared to other sovereign bonds, usually five um, years to commence the, uh, the action in court when it's okay. ready. Um Thank you. One final word. Um, perhaps I'll open this up to, to both of you. Um, what should the West do then to, um, to, to facilitate this so that Russia doesn't gain sympathy uh, for being pushed to default. Well, I think you know one one way uh, would be to um, to actually explain uh, publicly the justification for forcing Russia into debt default um, and uh, you know closing the, the you know the window of um, at least. Uh, um, allowing Russia to make payments on this foreign um, foreign bonds. So that would be one way from a, from a pure financial perspective. It would signal to the market the intention and uh, kind of, uh, uh, um, undercut that sympathy that might be growing. Um, as I said, it, it's probably, you know, as I read it, it probably was an intention. Why not publicize it? Um, otherwise, the, you know, certainly the market memory down the road will be that uh, Russia uh, defaulted because not because it was unwilling or unable to pay. Certainly, Russia is well uh, well able to uh, service its very small um, sovereign debt uh, stock um, and willing. Uh, we've seen that, um, and um, so I think that that's un unfortunate that it hasn't been a pronouncement. But I hope it will come soon. Yeah, I also, think that there's clearly been uh, a political intention to drive Russia out of the international capital markets as a political gesture to say that uh, given its international behavior, Russia is not fit to be uh, a member, uh, as it were, of the international financial community. Um, and uh, as uh, Elena has outlined, that political intention, which was behind this whole effort, um, maybe uh, what has trumped the sort of common sense of, wouldn't it make more sense for them to be able to go on paying their Forex uh, to bondholders rather than uh, using it to buy weapons, if that's the choice. Um, but, you know, sometimes politicians, and it is, I think, driven by politicians here clearly, um, take decisions for, for reasons of political signaling uh, rather than for, uh, um, you know, reasons of technical uh, a common sense, and uh, I, I think that's what's happened here. Um, I think the, the, the other thing that, that um, might come about is that clearly there is a negotiation going on behind the scenes about the conditions for the release of Ukrainian uh, wheat and, uh, and fertilizer into international markets, and um, that really the the, 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 there's a possibility, or it's imaginable, let's say, um, that 
this becomes part of that negotiation of the question because the Russians are, are setting some conditions saying uh, that the, the sanctions must be lifted or eased so that Russia too can export its, uh, its grain. Um, and the issues around uh, uh, Russia being able to, it's not that there are no sanctions as such on the export of Russian grain and fertilizer, but the sanctions are around how do you pay for it? How do you ship it? How do you ensure the ships that, that carry it and so on? And so if there really is an overwhelming international desire um, to uh, prevent the, the, the hunger crisis, which is building around the world, which is already developing uh, because of uh, Ukrainian and also some Russian uh, wheat being taken off the market, fertilizer being taken off the market uh, by the war, uh, then it's imaginable to me at least that the question of financing and the question of debt may, may get involved in this. Um, I don't think that, that, that many people in the West have this question of Russian default very high on their radar screen. It's not, it's not an issue that uh, most senior politicians are, uh, are dealing with on their desks every day. So that's the question. Might it, might it get involved in a wider negotiation about getting this grain and the fertilizer to market so as to prevent a looming uh, uh, hunger disaster around much of the world? Thank you to our special guest, Eleanor Daly, and senior fellow, Paul Taylor, and of course you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode 16 of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine.